Well, welcome to the Alien Probe Podcast. Any unsolved crime is intriguing enough, but some surpass conventional intrigue and fall into the realm of strange. I'm not talking about merely weird. I mean truly creepy. The kinds of crimes that would have an armchair sleuth up all night obsessed with a solution. The internet loves lists, so it abounds with rundowns of unsolved homicides. Some of the following might be familiar to anyone who's ever read one of those lists. Some won't. Some are also obviously crimes. Others are assumed to be homicides because, at least in one case, there's really no other rational conclusion. You won't find classic unsolved cases here. No Jack the Ripper. No Zodiac. We do have a little Black Dahlia in the end there, though, but some of these are in cases you've never heard of. These are in no particular order. They're all equally intriguing in their own ways. Welcome back, Deb. How you doing? I'm doing great, Doug. Would you like to discuss what happened this morning with the great podcast that we did that um, didn't record? Yeah, well, we did. Well, it did record, although it sounded <laughs> like gibberish from Mars because we did our first remote. Okay, everybody. All Get our from, first remote from Florida. All the way from Florida. One of my old friends, Dr. Bill. So we're going to do Dr. Bill in a couple of weeks and bring him back so we can discuss flying saucers are real. And it was awesome. But um, unfortunately, it didn't come through. So we've got some murders going on here. So why don't we talk? Why don't we start with this one, Deb? Who put Bella down the witch elm? <laughs> I guess that's witch. W-Y-C-H. Witch. Yeah, That's white, the, white, the best I know. Yeah. Um, driving along the A456, or Hagley Road, between Central Birmingham and Wooferton, Strupshire, you'll pass the border of Hagley Wood. From the road, it looks forbidding. It's easy to think of a gothic heroine trapped in the shadows of the trees as dark falls, misty and menacing. Naturally, it's home to a mystery that's endured since the early 1940s. On April 18, 1943, three boys hunting birds' nests spotted an enticing witch elm, one of the most common breeds of European elm tree. The tree's wide trunk was virtually hollow, and as one boy climbed, he looked down, and through a knot hole, he saw a skull. Some hair attached to the skull, and inarguably human teeth. Inarguably yeah, human teeth. Yeah, they were obviously they human were. teeth. Someone's body had been stuffed inside the tree. Of course, the boys didn't notify police right away because they'd been trespassing, as boys do. <laughs> Finally, somebody caved, and one of them told. Along with the skull, the investigators found most of a skeleton, a wedding ring, and a shoe. In the skull's mouth, they found crumpled taffeta. And taffeta is? Taffeta is like a silky material that a, like a prom dress Safan. would be made out okay. of. Forensic investigation revealed she'd been smothered, then hidden inside the tree almost immediately after death. In 1944, someone scrawled graffiti on a wall in Birmingham. Who put Bella down the witch elm? Hegley Wood. The same question has appeared over and over again, often written as Who Put Bella in the Witch Elm, since the 1970s on the side of an obelisk not far from the site. In the 40s, 
One theory suggested which sacrifices, witches sacrificed Bella in a ritual. It was wartime, so it was possible she was a spy or a woman who just knew too much. But to this day, no one knows who killed Bella. You know, sometimes women just know too much. Tell us about problem. Springfield 3. I don't want to get stuffed in the trees. The Springfield 3 on June 6, 1992. Springfield, Missouri news leader predicted partly cloudy conditions that night with lows in the 60s. Suzanne Streeter and Stacy McCall had just graduated from high school and they'd been at a party till just after 2 a.m. Deb. What happens at 2 a.m.? Nothing good when you're a high school girl. Nothing good happens. Sometimes it's good, but it can be bad. The keg is empty and it's time to go. When they headed into the cool night for Suzanne's home on 1717 East Delmar, it cracks me up to have the address. Yeah, that makes a big difference. Couldn't go visit. Stacy, Suzanne, and Suzanne's mother, Cheryl Levitt, were never seen again. The disappearance of one person might be intentional. Maybe they just wanted to begin a new life. The disappearance of two teenage girls and one girl's mother is obviously something else altogether. It really is. It was obvious from the beginning that whatever happened probably happened fast. There were no signs of a struggle. Yet everything someone might take with them was still there. Purses, clothes, cars, cigarettes, Levitt's and Streeter's dog. So they... They found their dog. The, they left the dog. So where was the dog when all this is going on? That's what I want to know. Well, probably at the house, along with all their cars. They didn't go home and get their stuff. They just Well, mom didn't walk them home, so they got home, right? Did they? Well, their mom's gone, too. Okay. So unless... So they somebody did this and took all of them and left with mom, both of them with their mom. So it's bizarre. The last anyone heard from Levitt was a phone call around 11 p.m. the night of the 6th. She was likely asleep before she and the girls left, as it was obvious she's gotten out of bed. So the trio vanished into the night sometime after 2 a.m. So maybe somebody followed the girls home. Yeah, they followed them home. Three of them. Oh, my God. You know, there's a $42,000 reward for any information that leads to finding whoever killed Cheryl. Suzanne and Stacy. Wow. Deb, what do you got next? The Oakland County child killer. Uh, it's possible the child killer or killers who murdered Mark Stebbins, Jill Robinson, Christine Mihailich, and Timothy King was identified. While little about this unsolved series of murders, which occurred between February of 1976 and March of 1977, resembles the infamous Zodiac murders, it is similar in that there were several suspects over time. They included known pedophiles, a mysterious male couple in which the sub claimed his dom committed the crimes. I bet the sub got punished for that crap. And John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> of course John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> One strong suspect, Chris Bush, committed suicide in 1978. And after that, no murders matching the Oakland County profile ever happened again. But the case is still considered unsolved. The details are haunting. The children were held for days, even weeks. They were bound and sexually tortured. The final confirmed victim, Timothy King, 
was held from March 16th to March 22nd of 1977. During that time, his mom wrote a letter to the Detroit News saying she just wanted him to come home soon so he could have his favorite food, which was Kentucky Fried Chicken. When Timothy was found, he was posed with his skateboard next to his body. His clothes had been washed and pressed. An autopsy indicated his final meal was fried chicken. That is just haunting. You killed this poor child, but you gave him some chicken. Uh, yeah, ass. freak. The Velisca Axe Murders. In 2017, Bill James and his daughter Rachel McCarthy James published The Man from the Train. The Jameses claimed they'd solved the mystery, mystery of the June 10th, 1912 murders of the Moore family and two guests in Velisca, Iowa. They identified a man named Paul Mueller and laid out a case for Mueller, having ranged across the U.S. into Canada, killing up to 100. That's a busy 100 people. Yeah, but 100 years later. Well, the authors made a compelling case. The truth is that after 106 years, the case will never be solved. Really? How do you know that? Well, it seems unlikely that if we didn't solve it 106 years ago, the details of the Moore murders are horrific, horrific and strange, and perhaps more bizarre still for where they occurred. A sleepy town in southwest corner of Iowa with a population of just over 1,100. Means he killed 10% of the people. I know. <laughs> population control. The night of June 9th, 43 year old Josiah Moore, wife Sarah, and their children Herman. Mary Catherine, Arthur, and Paul headed home from Children's Day events at their church. That was very wholesome. I know. Those names. I love those names. But the whole situation, you know, yeah. the town, 1,100 people. They were at church. I love They would have moved there. With, with them were Mary Catherine's friends, Ina May and Lena Stillinger. Someone was waiting for the group in the attic of the Moore home at 508. They always get the address. Yeah. 508 East 2nd Street. Look that up on your phone. Where is yeah. that? Yeah, let's go there. He'd smoked a couple of cigarettes as he waited. Then someone, then sometime between midnight and 5 a.m., he killed everyone in the house with Josiah's own axe. He used the blunt end edge on everyone save Josiah, who received more blows than everyone. I wonder what Josiah is, what he did. He's, it's his axe, man. A slab of uncooked pork sat beside the axe in the guest room where the Stillingers were killed. All the curtains in the house were closed. Well, I wonder what the significance of the uncooked pork is. I don't know, it's like he took something out of the fridge to... Was he going to get a snack? Well, don't eat uncooked pork. Yeah, it's very it has unhealthy. those whatever in there. Huh? Trichinosis, yeah. yeah. All right, well, next we have the Texarkana Moonlight Murders. Long before the Zodiac Killer, another nameless psychopath preyed on couples parking in out-of-the-way places around Texarkana a city that sits on the Arkansas-Texas border. Those couples in out-of-the-way parking spots. That's know, right. Something's happening. Over the course of 10 weeks, five people were killed. Some of the women were sexually molested. One man was beaten. All of them were shot. Then the murders simply ceased. Three more victims survived this, quote, phantom killer attacks. Description of the killer, descriptions of the killer were consistent. 
Oh, he wore a white mask with holes cut for the eyes. That, that's Halloween. Or it was Halloween. Yeah. We, yeah. A convincing case has been made through the years that the killer was a habitual criminal named Yule Swinney. His wife, Yule's wife, even said he did it. Then she changed her mind and recanted that story. Never mind. I still need him to work and give me money. Swin Swinney died in 1994, taking whatever secrets he had with him. But, you know, probably pissed that his wife went ahead and, you know, yeah. told the key. Yeah, it was him under that white mask. Yeah, never mind. Holes. I remember cutting out the holes for yeah, those eyes. I cut eyes. the holes out myself. Yeah. The murder of Arliss Perry. That fall night in Palo Alto. Oh, goody, California. Yeah. Yeah, I assume there's maybe another part. I don't know. Arliss, yeah, they give the address of everything yeah, else, but not Palo Alto. Yeah, this one's just Palo Alto. Well, you know, California, you're not probably not allowed. Arliss Perry was just 19 and married to Bruce Perry, whom she'd met in high school. Bruce was a sophomore at Stanford. Arliss, a yeah, it's Palo Alto. Arliss, a receptionist. The story of that night, October 12th, 1974, goes from merely odd to surreal nightmare. Bruce said they'd argued. Well, you know, sometimes you just have an Bruce argument. Bruce and Arliss having an argument. Then Arliss left, saying she wanted to pray alone at Stanford Memorial Church. You want to pray on this argument. You know, you should make him go with you. In the middle of the night, a worried Bruce called the police to report that Arliss hadn't come home and told them where she was. So he couldn't. He didn't go to the he church. He didn't yet. go to the church to see what was going on. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to call I'm not, the I'm, not, I'm not going there. See, I'm, I'm suspecting. I don't want to be. I'm, I'm, was, I'm suspecting Bruce at this point. It's always the husband, isn't it? You couldn't just go, you know, check for, to see if she was still. Because that's a long time to be at a church praying. At some point, they must kick you yeah, out and lock the church. Yeah, what is it? Do they just leave the church open all night? I think some of them do stay open, but. Is I, there no one there? Just It's just open? Well, you should be able. I think you can go in and pray whenever you want, but. When they checked, the church was locked, and everything looked fine. So, okay. Yeah. A few hours later, a security guard entered the church and found Arliss on the floor, not far from the altar. So they checked. The church was locked, and everything looked fine. Yeah. But no, but they didn't, they, they didn't think to go inside. Well, then they probably had to find somebody to unlock the church and let them in. They're not going to break All down right. the door. So she lay on her back, a five-inch long ice pick. Jutting from her skull. Oh, wow. She'd been strangled. Oh, <laughs> so God. she strangled and just, it's hard to get that ice pick through the skull. So, oh. fuck, that didn't work. Oh, uh, <laughs> and then a large candle lay on her chest. She was nude from the waist down, and a second candle had been inserted into her vagina. Oh, this is so bad. You know, I mean, who. Who's who thinks of it? It's like you know what it'd be. Yeah, yeah now I'm gonna do this. Yeah. I just don't know what goes through people's lives. Well, obviously. No, please don't ever know what's going through. <laughs> people who were in and out of the church that night, one was never identified, and the resemblance between that unknown man and a strange visitor to Arliss's workplace on October 11th was significant. Yeah, that's the day before. Yes. Some guy went to his workplace the day before who looks like somebody who was in this church. That's creepy. Bruce Perry was quickly ruled out. I oh, guess that okay. was him. So they ruled okay. him out huh. for whatever reason. Seems very odd. Why? While no less than son of Sam serial killer David Berkowitz claimed some kind of knowledge of this case, 
investigators concluded he had no involvement. Well, maybe the dog told him about it. Okay, so we figured out the dog, it wasn't his dog, it his was his neighbor. His neighbor sent him messages through the dog telling him to kill. It so was a black lab? It was a lab. It didn't say what color it was. We don't judge by color. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, certainly. And the... But the neighbor was the guilty party, but he was sending these messages through his lab. Because, you know, labs are always sending evil thoughts. Was the neighbor the guilty party? Well, he was telling Son of Sam to do it. Oh. Duh. So, of course, he's It was the dog. The dog. Son, Son of David Berkowitz was innocent. It was all the neighbor. Theories have frequently included some kind of satanic ritual, which in this case sounds logical. A religious group with tentative links to Charles Manson was considered as well. But no one knows what really happened that night, save that it was the stuff of horror films. Well, yeah. And then they locked up the well, church afterwards. Was Charles they... Manson affiliated with some sort of religion? I thought it was his own, like, religion. He was his own, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he... Charles Manson was his own religion. The ego of Charles Manson. The ego. Yeah. And you've got Blair Adams. Blair Adams. If you've ever watched, have you ever watched Unsolved Mysteries? Hell the yeah. 90s? Love that show. Well, then you may be familiar with the unsolved murder of Blair Adams, because it's damn hard to forget. On July 11th, 1996, Blair was found dead in a hotel parking lot in Knoxville, Tennessee. About $4,000 in cash was flapping and flying around <laughs> with him. I don't, was flapping he, and flying. Was he in it's the like wind? like birds, or was he birds? Was he in the wind? It was an odd mix of currencies, bills from his native Canada, American dollars, and even some German Deutschmarks. Before his death, Blair seemed like a man on the verge of a meltdown. He was paranoid, telling people close to him that someone wanted him dead. That always that someone. Yeah. He had mood swings similar to typical bipolar disorder, and that is bad. He withdrew the money from his bank on July 5th, and added some expensive jewelry to the mix. Oh, cool. Yeah, some people do that. Well, hopefully that wasn't flying around, too. He then attempted to cross into America, but was halted because that much cash spelled drug mule to Border Patrol. So you're not coming in. Yeah, you got too much money. He rerouted, bought a plane ticket to Germany, which then he didn't use. No, he spent more money. That's not, yeah, he's running out of money now. Instead, Blair made another run at a border crossing. And succeeded in crossing into Seattle. I guess the they don't you know, go ahead, go buy some drugs, go mm -hmm. for it. Oh, pot's legal. Blair made Blair well, made that's another now. Sorry, yeah, not then. Blair made another weird move and flew to D.C., where he rented a car, made his way to Knoxville. Witnesses said he seemed unnerved, like a man in crisis. Psychological, real, we'll never know. We know that Blair was murdered sometime around 3 a.m. Possibly by a club. Probably held by a person. I don't well, know. It's like just the club. But it, whatever it was. <laughs> it's it was, a blood club killer. It was heavy enough to kill. He was kill. clubbing. Maybe they meant he was clubbing. He was, he was killed. It was something. Whatever it was. It was <laughs> Blair Adams' murder is the coldest of cold cases now. Even though police found hair from someone else in his hand. Ooh, he got pulled some hair out of him and managed to mine it for DNA. There was never a match. We just have a man far from home, dead in the night, surrounded by cash. Surrounded and by all of flapping the, and flapping in the wind. I don't I don't understand that. And all the answers went with him. Doug, tell us about the Snapchat murders. 
On February 13th, 2017, we're getting new. We're getting close. Yeah, we'll see. We're in the Snapchat era and now. And we've got some fancy names. Liberty Libby German, age 14, Little and her 13-year-old friend, Abigail Williams. Living managed to photograph, where is this? Managed to photograph, then record the voice of their killer. Yet over a year after the double homicide in Delphi, Indiana, there we are, the case remains unsolved. The girls were on the Delphi historic trails, doing what eighth graders do, snapping pics, posting them on social media, playing grab ass. At some point, they must have noticed a heavy set man nearby. Libby had the presence of mind to take his photo. His head was bent. He was wearing a cap, walking with his hands in his pockets. Once he was close enough, German caught one more clue, a man's voice, tone flat saying, down the hill. Sometime after that, she and Abigail were murdered. Police have released very little about the investigation. They've said they have DNA and more than one indicated they felt very close to solving the mystery. Daniel Nations, a man arrested in Colorado, has been mentioned as a person of interest, but he's never been arrested. What's left as of March 2018 are just the threads of a mystery that seems so close to a solution, but it isn't there. At least, unlike many of these cases, there's still plenty of time to figure it out. I mean, there's always time to figure it out. I yeah, mean, there's, you know, but, with DNA. Yeah, this is, you know, but see, the person who did it, you know, shouldn't, won't be dead within the next year because it's, you know, 100 years ago or 50, even 50 years ago that this person's still out there. Then there's the monster of Florence, Deb. Okay, let's, we're going to Florence, Italy. From the late 60s through 1985 or so, Someone murdered at least 14 people in and around Florence, Italy. The case is famous in part due, its, due to its resemblance to the Zodiac murders in Northern California in 1968 and 69. Hmm. Maybe he just well, you know, moved on. Il Mostro, as the Italians called him, targeted couples parking on lovers' lanes. They're always doing that. It's such a romantic thing, too. He killed with a 22 and a knife and added a gruesome signature, cutting off parts of the women he murdered as souvenirs. <laughs> Ugh. He may also have stalked some victims prior to the murders and then, you know, taunted their families afterwards. Maybe. How does he know How does he know they were souvenirs? How do they know they're souvenirs? Well, I'm assuming just, if he... Missing. Well, what? <laughs> what do you think? He then tossed them out the door? They just cut them off and, you know... So, uh, police didn't lack for suspects. The note, the most noted being convicted murderer and peeping Tom Pietro Pacciani. Little peeping Toms. In <laughs> fact, Pacciano stood trial for Il Mostro's crimes and was convicted, only to have the conviction overturned. Then, Pacciani's friends Mario Vanni and Giancarlo Lotti were convicted of the murders and imprisoned. But still, few Italians are convinced they actually collaborated on the crimes. They sound like mobsters. Of course, they're in Italy. So. Theories about the case, such as some kind of satanic link, which is you know common among um, unusually strange murders, abound. There's always that satanic link. Yeah. But there is a powerful feeling among many Italians still that they don't 
truly know the answers to this mystery at all, Doug. The Freeway Phantom. One of the chief reasons you haven't heard of the Freeway Phantom, a truly creepy killer who forced a victim to write a taunting note to police, might be racism. Between 1971 and 72, the Phantom murdered six young African-American women in and around Washington, D.C. They were between 10 and 18 years old. Some were sexually assaulted. His spree began in April of 71 with Carol Spinks, age 13. She disappeared while walking home after buying groceries. Her body was found almost a week later in the grass, not far from I-295. Then in July, the killer took 16-year-old Darlenia Johnson. She was held for just over two weeks before the Phantom dumped her body just feet away from where the Carol Sphinx was found, from where Carol Sphinx was found. The killer next took 10-year-old Brenda Crockett. A few hours after she disappeared, she called home crying. She said a white man had picked her up and she was coming home, then ended the call suddenly with bye. Brenda called back, saying she was in a house and once more was yanked off the phone. Unlike the others, she wasn't held. The, the killer raped and strangled the girl to death before dumping her by the side of a Maryland highway. Oh, God. Oh, that's a bad guy here. Nino Moshia Yates was next. Nina, yeah. Nino Moshia yeah. Yates was next. She was just 12, and she suffered an almost identical fate to Brenda Crockett, including being found beside the road. The killer earned the Freeway Phantom moniker after Nina Mashia's murder. The Phantom wasn't done. His most bizarre murder was next. These people were... Uh, so sad. I know. He abducted Brenda Woodward, an 18-year-old who was last seen getting on a bus to go home. She was found several hours later. She lay under her own coat. The killer left a note this time, and the police believe... He made Woodward write it. Yeah, because he's illiterate. Probably, yeah. This is tantamount to my insensitivity to people, especially women. I will admit the others when you catch me, if you can. Free Sign way. the freeway Free phantom. dash way phantom. Ugh. Another genius. Final victim, Diane Williams, was 17, and she too was abducted after boarding a bus, only to be found strangled and dumped by I. I would not want to drive down this freeway. Yeah, this is bad freeway here. Police believe Brenda Crocker was forced to lie when she made her haunting phone calls. A local gang was suspected of some connection to the murders, and a prison inmate claimed knowledge, then clammed up. In the end, the police files were lost, oh, and all the threads left dangling. That's not right. They're lost, huh? Okay, yeah, that's... whatever. Six girls dead by the road at the hands of a psychopath who then vanished, in part because police of the era couldn't be bothered to hang on to the evidence. Yeah, that's that's not right. That's that, Yeah, you know, that, that. yeah, there's some garbage going on there. Bad news. Here's a good one for you, Deb. 
Oh, we're going to the Black Dahlia. Oh, yeah. This is this has been around well it, since 1947. Since 47, and, and revisited many times. And many movies and many stories. Um, awesome. In 1947, the butchered body of Elizabeth Short was discovered in a vacant lot outside downtown Los Angeles. In the annals of unsolved American crime, few cases cast a spell quite like the Black Dahlia murder. The slaying occurred late on January 14th, or maybe in the early morning, hour, morning hours of January 15th of 1947. It's been years. But while decades have passed since newspapers first broke the brutal crime with the titles, the headlines of L.A. Girl Slain, Body Slashed in Two, and Body Dismembered, Left in Field, the case remains as mystifying as ever. Part of this infamy can be attributed to the uh, movie titled The Black Dahlia in 1980, or excuse me, first we have The Black Dahlia. It was a novel in 1987 by noir master James Elroy, noir. and then the 2006 film adaption of the same name. But the public's continued obsession goes beyond such narrative reimaginings. Professionals and amateurs alike continue to pore over case details in hopes of a break. As recently as a year and a half ago, Retired L.A. detective Steve Hodell announced he had cracked the case with evidence that implicated, of all people, his own father. Oh, that's awesome. And here's the story. My dad killed Black Dahlia, says retired cop. She's very pretty. Yes, she was. A retired police detective suspects he's getting closer to solving a series of 1940s Hollywood murders, including that of the Black Dahlia. And the man he, man he suspects to be the killer is his own father. Steve Hodell first began to suspect George Hodell while going through his belongings after his death at age 91 in 1999. That's where he says he found two photos resembling Elizabeth Short, who became known as the Black Dahlia. And DA records confirm Hodell was indeed under suspicion in the 1947 case. The younger Hodel started doing research and in 2003 published a book on the subject. He suspected his father killed as many as 10 young women before moving to Asia in the 1940s, including Jean Spangler, a 26-year-old actress who may have been seeking an abortion before her 1949 disappearance. Hodel says his father was then one of the only L.A. area physicians performing abortions and new evidence lends credence to his serial killer theory, he tells NBC LA News. Hodel believes his father committed the murders in or near their home in the, at the time, which Hodel told CBS in 2004 included a secret room he and his siblings weren't allowed to enter. Suspecting the bodies may have been disposed they weren't allowed to enter, but as a kid, as would a you kid, get to? Be, well, maybe in, uh, unless he locked it. He probably locked. Unless it, it was locked, and you kids, couldn't possibly figure out. Kids will go wherever you tell them not to. <laughs> you know how kids. You are. kids are gonna go. Yeah, I'm gonna see what's in there. Suspecting the bodies may have been disposed of nearby, he returned to the house in 2012 with a cadaver dog in tow. Well, you didn't have to tow it. They dogs just, tow you. You yeah, don't they, tow dogs. They walk along with you. <laughs> it picked up the scent of a possible human decomposition in several areas, including the alley behind the house. A soil sample from the alley was analyzed late last year 
and it came up positive for human remains, says the forensic anthropologist who tested it. Hodel next wants to deepen his search for the remains, but he's been thus far barred from searching the private hillside near the home, and the LAPD has declined to get involved. Hodel also thinks his father, who traveled to Northern California in the 60s and died while living in San Francisco, may have been the Zodiac Killer. But at least two other people have pinned those murders on their fathers as well. What's with the people What's, and their fathers? I, can you just imagine growing up and then, you know, realizing at some point, oh, you know, I think my I think my dad was a serial killer. It's <laughs> crazy. God. Well, despite all of this scrutiny, no one has conclusively fingered the murder of the Black Dahlia, whose real name was Elizabeth Short. For 21 of her 22 years, Short bounced between Boston and Miami. She only lived in Southern California for the final six months of her life. Yet it's the arid hills of, excuse me, arid hills of Los Angeles that are most commonly associated with the victim, and it was the dusty basin due south of downtown L.A., where her body was found on January 15, 1947. Betty Bersinger discovered the remains around 10 a.m. in a vacant lot in Lebert Park. At first, she thought she had dis discovered a discarded mannequin. That would be creepy enough. Yeah. The truth was far more grisly. Short's body had been bisected at the waist. Her intestines were tucked beneath her buttocks. Her legs had been spread apart and her elbows bent at right angles in a grotesque pose. Short's face was slit from ear to ear in a maniacal joker face rictus. Her breasts were slashed, her nose broken, vulva mutilated, and her body was drained of blood. Short had been missing since January 9th. Her whereabouts during this missing week remain a mystery, and for many contain the key to her death. Oh, that's so sad. What isn't a mystery is the wave of coverage triggered by the murder. Multiple factors pushed the slain to the front page. The grisly state of Schwartz's corpse, her age, her attractiveness, and a sustained media effort to engage in a brand of old-school victim-blaming via shaky reporting on Schwartz's sex life. Even the nickname Black Dahlia speaks to the media's two-faced presentation of Schwartz. On one hand, she was portrayed as a girl lost in the big city, murdered by predators who took advantage of her innocence. In the same breath, many journalists insinuated Short had worked as a call girl. The barely concealed subtext was that a sex worker had been burned in her line of work. Such, as a, de such a death was unfortunate, but perhaps also to be expect expected. Yeah, that's just great. That's a great attitude. The Los Angeles County District Attorney determined Short had never worked as an escort, but this was only one of the many misconceptions surrounding the case. Witnesses who had supposedly seen Short during her missing week were, one by one, questioned and dismissed by investigators, who determined they were either outright lying or had mistaken Short for another woman. Some 60 people came forward and confessed to the crime. Of these, 25 were seriously considered by the LAPD. Many of the suspects were household names, including Fred Sexton, the artist who created the Maltese Falcon prop in the iconic movie of the same name, Norman Chandler, publisher of the Los Angeles Times, Jewish mobster Bugsy Siegel, 
and the aforementioned George Hodel, a physician who purchased the famous Souden house, and according to Hodel's son, buried bodies in the backyard. Well, he doesn't know yeah. that he buried them in the backyard. No. He suspects he did. Yeah. And yet no convictions were ever made. The open-endedness of the Black Dahlia murder stoked the ensuing pop culture bonfire. Any L.A. noir film, noir. Noir film or T, I'm not French, or TV noir. show or video game can trace its creative ancestry to Short's murder. The popular game, L.A. Noir, has an entire level inspired by the killing. In many ways, Elizabeth Short's death is the country's preeminent brand name mystery. Ironically, while the Black Dahlia case remains unsolved, the nittiest of its gritty details are open to the public. If anyone wants to search through the crates of material related to the crime, just head to the FBI vault where official investigative materials are now public record. There you can witness the exhaustive work that went into the investigation. It's a record that, at the very least, puts to rest the myriad rumors that continue to haunt Elizabeth Short. Oh, sorry, Elizabeth Short, <laughs> long after her tragic end. The Goodbar murder, a woman's fatal one-night stand. Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Looking for Mr. Goodbar on January 1st, 1973. Catholic school teacher Roseanne Quinn was stabbed 18 times by a stranger she brought home from the bar. Can you just imagine? No, 18 times you'd be tired. You know, and, oh, my oh God, that's just And, you know, the 70s. Roseanne Quinn was the picture of innocence. A Catholic school teacher beloved by the eight-year-old students she taught at St. Joseph's School for the Deaf in New York City's Aww, Bronx. she taught deaf kids. This made it the more shocking when she was murdered in her apartment on New Year's Day in 1973, stabbed 18 times in the neck and abdomen. During the course of her murder investigation, a very different portrait of Roseanne emerged. Uh-oh. Yeah. Her neighbor claimed, oh, yeah, Gladys Kravitz yeah. claimed, oh, no, anyway. Her yeah. neighbor claimed she would frequently bring home strange men from the nearby bar. And one time, upon hearing screams, the neighbor emerged to find Roseanne in the hallway with a black eye, sobbing. Roseanne's murder inspired Lacey Fosberg's interpretive biography, Closing Time. The true story of the Goodbar murder, in which Roseanne Quinn is renamed Catherine Cleary, and convicted murder John Wayne Wilson, is Joe Willie Simpson. It was first published in 1977, the same year as the release of the film Looking for Mr. Goodbar, starring Diane Keaton and Richard Gere. As well as being an accurate account of the tragic murder, Fosberg book posed, uh, Fosberg's book poses the question, just how much do we really know? about the private lives, all those closest to us. Okay, I'm going to read the excerpt from the book, but I'm going to, you know. We're going to we're gonna we're, leave out some of it. We're going to leave out part of it because we don't, it's. It gets a little porn-like. It's, yeah, it's a, it's a little too so, porny. Uh, a little too porny in there. So we have, um, I guess, Joe Willie is at, um, Joe Willie is at her, Miss Goodbar's house right now. And he says, it was a mess. It looked like it hadn't been cleaned in weeks. Clothes were all over the floor. A box of sugar had spilled on the floor. The sofa bed was unmade. 
opened out into the middle of the room, and there were dirty dishes in the kitchen. Spaghetti what? sauce. What's the problem? <laughs> spaghetti sauce dribbled down <laughs> the front of the stove. They obviously don't have a dog there. That thing would be cleaned up. <laughs> Orange juice hardened on the floor. Oh, that's so gross. <laughs> the 23-year-old Willie looked around the house with the eyes of someone who had always lived in a spotless house and liked it that way. His sense of the woman shifted and took on an element of disgust. And then Catherine got some grass, and we're smoking pot now, smoking some pot. from a tin on the windowsill. Joe Willie, he tried to roll a joint, but he drunk too much, and he couldn't do it. So they didn't have the little rolling machine? No. The little with the red. I mean, I've never done yeah. it, but I've seen you know, yeah. I've seen it on TV. Yeah. They have a machine yeah. that you just put it in there. And, and yeah, so. I don't think she was that much of a professional. She would have made fun of him anyway. She's a school teacher. And she would have made fun of him anyway because so, you can't roll a joint. So she said, Catherine says, I'll do it. And uh, she acted irritated. And I think she's now, you know, now she's annoying because now he felt like he'd done something wrong. Um, so they leaned back against some pillows and smoked in silence. And then there was some sex stuff. And then time passed because I'm not going to talk about the sex stuff. <laughs> Nobody knows what happened. Maybe they made love. And then um, maybe they didn't. We don't know. Or maybe Joe Willie made fun of her. Maybe she made fun of him. Maybe he was the one who got nasty first, or maybe she was. Maybe Joe Willie started the awful fight, or maybe she started it. Nobody knows. And the only version left are Joe Willie's, and this is one version. First, we had some sex, not getting in there. <laughs> and then she started shoving me, and I blew up. I, not mad. I wasn't mad or anything, just very cold and hurt. I grabbed her and held her on the bed and tried to talk to her to get a reason for her sudden rejection of me. She started saying, kill me, kill me, please. I had no intention of killing anyone when I went there. Then she said I was crazy. She could see it. She tried to get up, so I grabbed her around the throat and started choking her because that's how you always do these things. I choked her for a long time. I choked her for a long time. But when I flip out, I can't see too well. And I thought she was still alive, so that's why I kept choking her, you know. <laughs> I then took her pants, which were on the floor next to the bed, and I choked her. Oh, God, I choked her with them for a while. I hit her a few more times, and then I went to the kitchen and got a paring knife and stabbed her several times, once hitting the jugular vein. A torrent of blood spurted up out of her neck. Oh, nice. It splashed in his face and made a huge, grotesque picture on the wall behind the bed. Blood was pouring from her body. It spelled out over Joe Willie's stomach and along his arms and legs. He went over to the windowsill, got a large red candle, and did bad yeah, things with it. Yeah, he did some it. weird thing with it. Yeah. Then he got to his feet. He stood in the middle of the room by the bed, his arms by his side. He stood there breathing and breathing. He looked back at the school teacher. Her eyes were open, staring in terror, her body spewing out blood. He looked at her more. Then he reached out and laid his fingertips tenderly on her eyelids. He moved them slightly, brought the eye open, or brought the open, frightened eyes to a close. Good, that's better. She yeah, didn't yeah. look good that way. She didn't want her <laughs> didn't watching. <laughs> then his body covered with her blood. He went to the bathroom and turned on the shower. He washed himself. He just washed himself off. Yeah. It was 3.30. He went back into the room. See, nothing good ever happened. It's just, no, it you know, does it not. Just, it was just too late. He picked up her turquoise blue bathrobe, laid it across the wounds of her body. He said he thought she looked better that way. Then he went around the apartment, turning over chairs and emptying out drawers. He took her wallet and some money, 
her white slip, and he was leaving. He picked up the large white statue of Catherine Cleary, and in one last surge of anger, he threw it hard at her face. Well, that's just great. So that's, you know, the, the story would be longer, but I took out all the, the nasty Yeah, it took parts. up all the nasty. We don't, there may be children listening, so we don't really, we don't really. Or adults who just don't want to Adults that don't want to hear that kind of thing. Murder porn. Cause murder porn. I remember that movie, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, but I don't I don't think I ever saw it. Okay, in 73, I was only 10, so I, I don't think I was of an age, but I remember it being at the movie theater. Did you see it? I did, but I don't. It was quite a while ago, so I don't really know the details. We're not going to go back and revisit that one. Probably not, but certainly there's a lot of murder weird. That This is why at Alien Pro Podcast we're discussing, because it is a little... Every situation here was a little odd, and you know, I think we should we watch a Black Dahlia murder. Movie we could watch the Black Dahlia, and, you know, check that out. I so thanks. I think there's one with Kim Bassinger that you might enjoy. Oh really? Yeah. Cool. So thanks for joining. Thank you, Doug. Appreciate it. Sorry you had to had to do a lot of extra recording today because of technical oh, difficulties. Oh, you know, I love doing this. We it's are all good. We are in a work in progress. Thanks for listening to the latest, la- latest, the latest episode of the Alien Pro podcast. We welcome comments, questions, or requests to, and India, please. You are second only to the U.S. in downloads, so you guys are doing a lot of. Uh, you guys are, and girls are uh, listening to a lot of episodes out there, and we appreciate it. So, send us a note at any on our email. Alien Probe Podcast at gmail.com. We would love to listen to find out who's listening to this. Yeah, we'd love to listen, see what you have to say. Um, visit us on Facebook at the Alien Probe Podcast, our website, alienprobe.net. Catch us on Twitter and Instagram at Alien Probe Pod. And as most of you already have, find us on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Thanks to our senior producer, Robert Anthony. Until next time.